there in podcast land to another episode of Live from the Pat Conroy Literary Center here on the Authors on the Air Global Network. This podcast is a monthly gift to our nonprofit Conroy Center from the Authors on the Air Network and our dear friend Pam Stack, and we are eternally grateful for that. This happens to be a very special episode of the podcast because it's happening on day two of five of our fifth annual Low Country Book Club Convention. And we're honored to have with us on the show tonight, Lauren Marino, author of Bookish Broads, Women Who Wrote Themselves into History. And this is a book that's very dear to us at the Conroy Center. I've recommended it any number of times and have given out more than a few copies, particularly to young women writers, uh, because there's so much to grab onto in this book, so much to dig into, into a very proud tradition of women authorship. And we'll get into that in just a second. Sorry, getting a little back on the microphone here. Apologies for that. Um, and Lauren will be with us in person as well at the Low Country Book Club convention on Saturday afternoon at 2 p.m. Lauren will join us live in person on the stage at the Technical College of the Low Country in conversation with me and our Conroy Center protege, Holland Perryman. Holland actually reviewed Bookish Broads for the Charleston Post and Courier and had the opportunity to interview Lauren once before for the Southern Review of Books. Lauren is a writer, editor, and publishing executive with plenty of experience working with major publishers, literary agents, and directly with authors. She's currently executive editor at Hachette Books where she acquires and edits nonfiction in many categories. Prior to that, she was the founding editor at Gotham Books, acquiring, editing, and publishing multiple bestsellers in a variety of nonfiction categories as well. Lauren has two other books, both illustrated, uh, both lovely keepsake volumes as well, uh, What Would Dolly Do? and Jackie and Cassini, A Fashion Love Affair. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm so glad the timing worked out. This was a book, uh, the first time I, I saw it, I thought would be ideal for a Low Country Book Club convention. And uh, by very happy coincidence, our monthly podcast happened to fall within the window. So we had two opportunities to include you in this week's festivities. And I'm very happy that worked out so well. Um, if you don't mind, I'm going to read just a bit of the book review that Holland Perryman, uh, my young protege, wrote for the Post and Courier, because I think Holland landed on some points of why this book was so meaningful to her. And, and I, here I should add for our un, unfamiliar audience, at the time that Holland was writing this book review, she was all of 16 years old. And this was a book I very much wanted her to read 
because as a young writer, I wanted her to know that she was adding to a canon of literature that goes back hundreds of years and, and ideally will continue forward hundreds of years as well. And she recognized that. And here's what Holland said uh, in that Post and Courier review. Reno's Chronicle of Women Words invites readers to better appreciate the influence of past writers on their modern counterparts and to embrace a more inclusive global view of the female experience in its pathbreaking storytellers. Intended as representative, bookish broad includes women from different eras, nations, races, religions, sexualities, social statuses, and genres to illustrate their diverse vantage points, as well as the struggles they overcame to be heard and valued as women and as artists. In desiring or demanding a voice for themselves, these women helped give help give others their own literary voices as well. And in telling the stories of this pantheon of influential women, Marino empowers burgeoning writers to follow their own creative yearnings and calls upon readers to honor those that come before us. Each of these life stories is different, affirming that writers and artists can indeed come from anywhere. None of these women lived or created without some measure of strife or sorrow, but all of them found purpose in the act of storytelling, and their words, ambitions, and ideals resonate in the work of all women writers who will follow. So that, um, I think, is a, a lovely summation from the point of view of a young reader and a young writer of why this book was so valuable to her. Uh, but, Lauren, I'd love for you to tell us where the idea of this book came from for you as a writer. What was the genesis of Bookish Broads? Well, I had been thinking about writing another book, and I wanted to, it to focus on women in particular and women who had made a difference, women who were outliers, who were revolutionary in some way, but it hadn't, it hadn't fully formed. And I know, like with me, with book ideas, it takes a while these days. I have, a, I have a, a broad idea, and then it kind of gestates for a while, and then I will find that because I'm, it's there in the back of my mind that I will be attracted to, or I will find different stories or articles or TV shows where I kind of, like, they, they start to show up for me, and I start connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I connected the dots was um, because I'm a, in, in the book publishing world, I get daily emails from Publishers Lunch and Publishers Marketplace, which is the daily trade news. And, and r- around lunchtime, I get an email every day that sums up what's been going on in the book publishing world or the book world. And I, there was an, there was an article that, um, that was in Publishers lunch about the it was put together by an organized an international organization of libraries and it was looking at the most circulated books in libraries around the world so the books that are checked out more than any other books and i looked at the list and they were presenting this list in such a proud way and I come from, you know, my, my great aunt, my great grandmother, my uh, aunt were all librarians. So I've always had a soft spot for librarians and for libraries. And I've spent a lifetime in libraries. 
So I read the list and it was most of the books were written by men. And it was such a small list of women. I think it was about 17 out of the top 100 of the most circulated books were written by women. So I said, how can that be? You know, in the book publishing world, it's common knowledge that 80% of books are purchased and read by women. Obviously, you know, we obviously publish lots of books for men, but we know that women are buyers of books and that women are huge readers. And I know that when I was growing up, I was reading women. Uh, you know, I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. I was reading Judy Bloom and Frances Hodgson Burnett and Laura Ingalls Wilder and the Bronte sisters. Uh, so I thought, where, you know, okay, so the Brontes are on there, but there are so many of the beloved writers I grew up reading that I know I checked out of the library um, and they weren't on there. So I started Googling. I, I, I got off the computer. I went on and I looked at, I Googled uh, the world's most important books or, you know, the most influential books in history or the greatest books. And all, you know, at the top of Google, there's all those images. It was all, it was right. all Dickens. It was Proust. It was, now these are writers that I have read or writers that I studied and writers that I love, but I couldn't believe how few women were there. So being the geek that I am, I started adding up, you know, I went through the list and started adding. And it turns out that um, there, there's a, a website called thegreatestbooks.org that I sort of went down the rabbit hole and I dug it up. And what they had done is gone through 129 best of book lists from a variety of very well-established sources like the New York Review of Books or the New York Times or uh, various literary journals um, from around the country and around the world. And out like the first top 50 that showed up, eight of the top 50 were by women. And it was all the usual suspects, Charlotte Bronte, Jane Austen, Virginia Woolf, Emily Bronte, Toni Morrison, George Eliot, Harper Lee, Mary Shelley, Alice Walker. And I, I thought to myself, wait a minute, there's so many women that are missing from this. And so I kept scrolling and I looked at the top 100 out of the top 100 books in the world, in the history of the world, 14 out of a hundred were written by women. Wow. And I thought, how is that possible? Women have been writing forever. I've spent my life writing, uh, re reading and publishing books, you know, by women um, so then I started look, going even further, and I said, of the um, 50 most influential books in human history. So let's just not talk about the greatest, because what does that mean, the greatest books? You know, that was based on all of the literary um, reviews, which, you know, we know until recently were all run by men. You know, until I, I yes. found out later during the process of writing this book that, the New York Times, until the 1970s, had one page in the, in the Sunday book review that was called the Women's Pages. Because oh my. when they would just review the books that were for and by women in one page, the Women's Pages, because they just weren't considered 
valuable or important or prestigious or literary enough to be reviewed. And this is really up until, this is 45 years ago. So um, I'm like, okay, well, how about influential, you know, books that have changed the world? And five of the top 50 are by women. And um, some of them, like The Second Sex and Silent Spring and Pride and Prejudice, Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harry Potter, those are the top, those are the five of the top 50 most influential books in the world. Um, But I, I, I just still felt like there were so many missing. So I just, that's when the idea kind of gelled in my mind, like, wait a minute, why aren't these female writers being honored? Why aren't they on these lists? Um, Why aren't they being valued? Why aren't they part of the canon? And I started to go back to my own education. And, you know, I went to school, high school and college throughout the 1980s, and I was a literature major, and I studied the romantic poets, and I wrote my thesis on the poet Lord Byron, and you know, I was sort of a geeky poetry person, but we, I, I didn't read any female poets. Um, and, and even the books I was reading in 20th, my 20th century literature class were Hemingway and Bill Toss. You know, they, they were no, there were very few women. We read um, Eudora Welty, Willa Cather, Flannery O'Connor, but we just read their short story collections. We didn't read any of the novels. We did not study Mary Shelley uh, when I was studying romantic writers. And so I just felt like this was, um, you know, I started doing my research and lo- just looking at, are there other books out there that honor this? And all of the, there, there are, there's some amazing books, but they're all academic books. There were no mainstream books honoring these writers. So I said, okay, um, you know, as Toni Morrison has said, if there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you need to write it. So I decided <laughs> that I was going to write it. Um, <laughs> so I just started doing my research and I called my agent and I said, I have this idea. At the time, I was, I was calling it Literary Ladies. But then once I started getting into the lives of these women I was like, they're, they're not literary ladies. That's like pearl clutching for, for, for what these women were accomplishing. So that's when I decided to call it bookish broads because um, they were broads. You know, they were, they were revolutionary in their thinking. They were trailblazers. They were incredibly courageous. And they really, they risked their... Um, in some cases, their lives, certainly their reputations, their marriages, um, in order to put pen to paper and express themselves. And I wanted to tell the stories behind the storytellers. Because I think sometimes when we look at these incredible writers, especially the ones that we've grown up reading and admire so much, we think, you know, they must be otherworldly. They must be geniuses. They must, you know, like ha- they're not normal, regular people like me. So what is it? If- I wanted to know what made them writers, what compelled them, what set them apart. But what I learned is that they were all just regular, ordinary women who had the courage and bravery 
and the willpower and the, the compulsion to get their words down on paper and then to find a way to get those books published and to find readers at a time when it was, you know, there were times where it's easier now, but there were times when it was illegal for a woman to write or she had to write anonymously. So um, just find more than you want to know, but that, that's how it all really started. And then it evolved from there. It's a fascinating and ultimately empowering origin story for the book of, of seeing a need of recognizing a need and realizing that it was a need you could respond to a gap you could actually fill yourself and learn so much along the way too. Uh, in the course of what you just said, you gave us a couple things I want to circle back around on, not, yeah. not just as they relate to the origin of the book, but as they relate to the origin of your own writing life as well. You mentioned having librarians in your family and being a literature major, but let's go back to the beginning and, and Share with us how your writing life began, your reading life even. What was your point of entrance into the world of literature? Well, I think it always starts as a, by being a, a reader, right? Just falling in love Indeed. with the book. Yes. You know, if you're a, you're a reader and you what you see on the page blows your mind, changes your perspective, enlightens you, um, opens your point of view, takes you to other worlds. I just think if you fall in love with books and reading, that somewhere in your heart you wish that you could be that person who is creating those stories and illuminating things for other people. Um, and, you know, I always, my, my little brother, we're Irish twins, right? So he's, you know, <laughs> Well, that's how it worked back then. We were Irish twins, but he really was a bona fide, he had a genius IQ and he learned to read, I think when he was three and I was wow. about, yeah, he, he learned to read at a very young age and I was not yet reading. I was like, I was a year and a half older than him or like a little bit over a year older. And he used to sit there, we used to sit there on the floor and he would read to me and he in some ways taught me how to read. And you know, when you're a child, the way that you learn, you know, and, and there's all sorts of studies that back this up. I just sort of did this naturally. But when you are being read to as a as a small, very small child, before you're um, literate, you memorize the stories, you memorize the words, and you, you look at the pictures, but the books that might, you know, and you know how children always say, I, I want... You know, read it again, again, again. Right. Yep. And so my mother would read the same stories to me over and over again, and you know, but after a week of that, you can you start telling the story out loud from memory to your mother. Um, but anyway, so I just I I fell in love with books um, really from a very young age, and I always kept journals, and I always think part of being a writer. I, you really have a different um, outlook on the world. And this may sound like I never, until I started writing and, and, and speaking and getting published, I never really shared this with anyone. But when I started to share it, I heard from so many other writers that they had done exactly the same thing. Like as a, as a kid, when I would walk to school, I always imagined that there was, sort of a third person, um, like a, a, an omniscient narrator over my head, almost like a mm. cat. 
And I would walk to school and that voice would observe the world around me. And now this is, you know, a seven-year-old walking to school. So there wasn't a lot of excitement. Probably that's probably a good thing. <laughs> but, you know, the birds and the, you know, and the squirrels and the trees and the way the wind was blowing. And so there was always this voice that came from somewhere else that was narrating what was going on around me. So I have found that so many writers or creative people, filmmakers, they view the world in that way. It's sort of like this from the, um, you're living your life, but you're, you're observing it at the same time. And you're looking at things from various points of view, which I didn't realize until I grew up that not everybody does that. And you don't want to, you don't want to grow up and tell people that you're hearing voices because, you know, they'll, 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 um, you know, but this was a, it was a, it was an inner voice. Right. And um, anyway, so I was, you know, I was writing in my journal when I was around 10 years old. And I don't know who, if any of anybody listening or if you remember this, but back in the in the women's magazines that my mother used to read, my mother was a voracious reader and we had a big bookshelf and she was a member of the Book of the Month Club. So I would always be reading behind her, whether I was supposed to or not. I was reading whatever she was reading. Um, and there used to be these ads, I think in Parade Magazine or in some of the women's magazines that said, so you want to be a children's writer. Um, and there was a little card that you would fill out with your name and address. And I, I filled it out and I mailed it in because, of course, I wanted to be a children's writer. <laughs> I was a child. I wanted to be a writer. And I got this whole packet in the mail with an application for, to this writing school and I filled it out. And before I mailed it, I gave it to my mother just to like proofread it before I put it in the mail. And so she's reading through it. And one of the questions is, who is your favorite contemporary adult writer? And I, and, and book. And I wrote down Fear of Flying by Erica Zahn. Because I, my, it, it was a book of the month club pick, and my mother had had it on her shelf, and I kind of just picked it up off the shelf. I had no idea what it was about, but I thought, well, Erica Jean, she's a bestseller writer. So I put that down, and my mother said, you know, Lauren, maybe you should, instead of saying Fear of Flying and Erica Jean, maybe you should say Shakespeare. So I, you know... <laughs> That's my mother figured out I was reading all of her dirty books. <laughs> um, you know, and it was the 70s. So, you know, that's what, that's what was happening at the time. But, I, you know, I always, I studied literature. Um, I, I always read tons of books in the summertime. There used to be, in middle school, there were all, like, contests who can read the most books over the course of the summer. And I was in that school library every single day, taking out one or two books, reading one or two books a day. And we moved around a lot when I was growing up. And those books, books were my anchor. They were my solace. They were my friend. And I, everywhere I ever went, I always had a book with me. And I still do, because you never know when you're stuck on the subway or at the airport or in a social situation you don't want to be in. I always had a book, and I always knew I could escape whatever situation I was in and go into some imaginary world. So that's, I mean, that's really, you know, that's ultimately I studied literature in college, and 
I knew I wanted to be a book editor, but I had no idea how to do it. And I, I ended up moving to New York. And back when I, when I started out, you had to take a typing test. And because I had written my thesis on Lord Byron on a regular old typewriter, and every time I made a mistake or had to revise it, I had to retype the entire thing, unlike Microsoft Word today. Um, so I became a very, very good and fast, accurate typist. So I went to the temp agency, and I, I got the highest score on the typing test, so a literary agent hired me. They used to hire you based on how, whether or not you were a good typist. Um, and from there, I really just kind of worked my way up through the publishing world. Um, but I was always writing in my journals and writing down stories and story ideas and, and book ideas. So you never really lost the dream of being an author yourself, even as you were pursuing a career and finding a career as, in, uh, as an editor and working with agents as well. Is that, uh, is that accurate? Is this always something that was uh, sort of circulating for you? Well, I, you know, I think when you're a book editor, you are working seven days a week. You know, you're working all day at the office, but you are reading book proposals and editing manuscripts on the weekends and your evenings and your early mornings. So, you know, time becomes a real issue. It's, yeah. it's, really, it's really, really hard to find the time to do it and to find the focus. And once I had children, it was totally impossible. It was, it was just totally impossible. So I think, you know, being a mother and, and working in a demanding job, um, I was finding it hard to read books for pleasure. So I would, I would write in journals, but honestly, once I had children, I kind of gave up on that. Um, but I think in the back of my mind, it was always there. Um, and in some weird way, having been in the book, not maybe not such a weird way, but being in the book publishing business from the inside for such a long time, I, I came to understand why publishers choose the books that they do, what's saleable, um, how media works, how a platform works, um, and how difficult it is. Because really, uh, 90%, I mean, there, there's a, a statistic that in 2020, during the pandemic, where book, this book sales really went through the roof because people were home reading. But yeah. only like 95% of books sold over a couple thousand copies. So most, the majority of books, it's always been that way where there are a few big hits that pay for everybody else. Yes. Mm -hmm. Most books do not earn out their advances. Most books do not um, make the big splash. And I think in some ways, have, I worked on some fiction early in my career and worked with a lot, had a lot of friends who were fiction editors. And I, I deliberately chose to publish nonfiction because I saw what a heartbreaker fiction could be. Um, it, you know, it's, it's just hard to get attention. It's hard to get attention for any book, especially now, especially right now within the you know, post-internet world with TikTok and social media and uh, Netflix 
um, you know, it, it, so, so, you know, I had an inside look at what it requires. And I think that really helped me to write, you know, I wrote nonfiction. I did not write fiction and I wrote books that I thought had a, a natural audience and I knew how to do my research to see, um, you know, there were, there were not other books about female writers that were not um, from academic presses. I wanted to write a mainstream accessible book. Um, so, I, you know, I found my opportunity, you know, the idea came to me, but I did my research and I, I saw an opportunity. Um, you know, and the same thing happened with my, my book about Dolly Parton, What Would Dolly Do? Um, I, you know, I had this idea uh, I mean, that's a whole nother long story that we don't need to totally go into, but that I sort of had this vision, like I was going through a really hard time in my life. I had lost my job. I'd gone through a divorce. I had two children, small children at home. I was freelancing. I was ghostwriting for other people. Um, and I was becoming a better writer through the practice of ghostwriting that allowed me, you know, that all of that writing made me a better writer, but I wanted, I was hungry to write something of my own. And I had a dream about Dolly Parton coming to me and, and saying, Lauren, get yourself together. It's time for you to start writing and enough of this writing for other people. What would Dolly do? I'm like, where did this come from? And I started to yeah. I, I realized there was, I was like, there's not a book called What Would Dolly Do? And there's no, there aren't any, she, she's written several autobiographies, but there, there weren't any um, books looking at her life. Um, there were some straightforward biographies, but nothing kind of life lessons and inspiration from her. And she's such an incredible woman. And, um, you know, so I found, like, so that it's about finding opportunities and finding gaps in the marketplace because publish, you know, literature is literature, but publishing is a business. And so I think I am fortunate that I was able to get published because I, I knew to do my research and to find my, you know, and I also think just sort of being in tune with what's going on in the zeitgeist and the culture, um, you know, the book is broad. That idea came to me, I think in, late 2018 and I, I wrote it during 2019 and that was that was kind of the year and like the year before like the whole me too movement right yeah mm -hmm. it sort of happened naturally and it was sort of the same thing with Dolly Parton like I sort of saw the signs of her becoming respected and I saw her as a renaissance woman and then shortly after like I, I published that book and then all of a sudden she was all over the place. So part of it's like reading the signs of what's going on in the culture. Um, and I don't, you know, I know for the, the more literary minded, uh, it's easy to poo poo that and say, well, I'm not going to write to the market. And I wasn't writing to the market. It was more that I was seeing, was sensing something and something that spoke to me personally uh, and had an idea and did my research and then, you know, and it kind of all came together. Um, but even with fiction, you see a lot of the fiction that's working so well right now. Um, it's, you know, it's, 
These are stories that are timely and timeless at the same time. And they're, you know, they deal with things, I mean, beyond there's historical fiction, but you look at something like The Vanishing Half, um, uh, or even um, where the crawdads sing, they're, you know, they're dealing with issues that women, women of color or women that have been raped or women who've had abusive situations, um, you know, those novels are addressing truths about women's lives that maybe were not spoken about before in fiction. So, um, you know, there's something to, you know, people write books in which the time that they're living and all of these bookish broads uh, were writing books about the times in which they were living and, and the things that they were experiencing and seeing and the change that they felt needed to be made in the world through their point of view. I think that's true of, of so many of the roughly 50 women that you've profiled in this book that, that found a way of, of necessity, of opportunity to tell stories that were simultaneously deeply personal, but also spoke universal truths as well, which is exactly why it's vital to continue reading them, uh, I yeah. think. And, and you said about your own uh, your your own writing process, both with the with the Dolly book and with Bookish Broads, of really doing the research of identifying where the opportunity is, not just in terms of, of the publishing universe, but the larger uh, cultural moment as well, is really good advice for writers who for publishing is the goal. Publishing, sales, success, all of that is to understand. Know, almost predictably, uh, where where the audience is going to be and meet them there, uh, and that's that's not an easy thing to do. It's certainly a, a tremendous challenge in fiction, and that, yeah. as you say, that's why there's so much heartbreak there to be found. Yeah. That's not not an easy accomplishment. But I mean, your your what would Dolly book? What would Dolly do book? Excuse me. Seemed to come out at the exact moment that we collectively decided that Dolly was a national treasure, and you know here was here was a moment for that book. And right. for bookish broads, right. uh, very similar sort of situation as you say. The Me Too movement was uh, was on everyone's mind, and there was a really a call out to rethink and reevaluate and and champion women in in every category of creative work public life all of those things and and here comes this book that speaks exactly to that need for figures some of whom were familiar to readers and some of whom were completely unfamiliar but that's the strength of of the book i think that it's an opportunity to discover voices and writers that you don't know uh, but should and still can know yes yes and that, I mean, the whole process of trying to figure out who to write about, I mean, like the, um, I was going through my notebook, you know, for each book, I have notebooks and um, where I just scribble down ideas and brainstorm or make lists. And with, with Bookish Broad, the list that I put in my original proposal is very different from the women that ended up being in the book. And uh, I have a whole, like, you know, a college rules, like a school notebook with just page after page after page, like a full notebook of listing women's name, female writers, and then having them get crossed out and then scribbling in the margins and saying, well, what about this person? 
And what I found, I mean, I started out with what were my favorite writers or, or the ones that I felt were part of the canon and the obvious ones that need, you know, where I felt like they kind of were the backbone or the foundation. But as I started studying them and researching them and reading more and more about them, I, I saw how so many of them called back to other writers that had come before them. Mm -hmm. Started to, someone would talk about, Someone else, like Virginia Wilk, talks about Afra Ben. I'm like, who is Afra Ben? I've never heard of her. So I went back and I know, you know, I studied my literature. So I know my restoration comedies and I know how bawdy and funny and crazy they are. Um, and I, I, you know, I spent a whole semester studying them. I never, they were all written by men, but Afra Ben wrote restoration comedy and she was wildly criticized for it. But she was a great writer, and she was a favorite of King Charles, and she was very successful. She was one of the first women to earn a, a living um, as a writer. But she was, I, I, when she died, uh, a, a, an obituary was written and a gravestone was put down that pretty much um, threw, threw her out. They, you know, like said, well, she's, you know, she's a harlot and a sinner. And how could she write about these things unless she experienced them personally? They, and she's a woman. How dare she? Therefore, uh, they, they basically shut her down. So it wasn't until centuries later that Virginia Woolf rediscovered Afra Ben and found her plays and brought them into the consciousness of at least the, at least feminist literature. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of women that then were rediscovered in the 1970s when feminist theory started to become a thing. Uh, for example, Alice Walker uh, really rediscovered Zora Neale Hurston. And Zora Neale Hurston had been such a major part of the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, but the... A stat, the literary establishment, and particularly the black male literary establishment, tore her to shreds. Just tore her to shreds, and she was, you know, she died penniless. She had an unmarked grave. No one read any of her books. And Alice Walker went down to Florida, found her gravestone, found her books, and started teaching them, and really revived them and you know I know my daughter just is a freshman in high school she just started and one of her um, one of the books that she chose to read as an optional summer reading book was Their Eyes Are Watching God and it's a hard book mm. to read it's written Indeed. in dialect yeah. and there's a lot of slang that is not familiar to a contemporary audience and you can see why the writers at the time were not keen on her writing in dialect, but there is a, I mean, it's poetry. It's so stunning. I went and reread it, read it with her, discussed it with her. Um, I mean, you know, that's a book that blows my mind. The story is, you know, since we've just gone through all these hurricanes, 
writing, she writes about how the people before television, before radio, how they knew that the hurricane was coming. And the hurricane is such a, you know, that's the major turning point in, in the story. And it's like, she tells a story of the animals leaving and the birds leaving and then the Native Americans with their things on their back leaving. And, you know, we didn't have the Weather Channel telling us Ida is coming or Sandy is coming. So, I mean, it's just fascinating for so many reasons to go back and read that book Um, for so many reasons. And it it has incredible merit. And, uh, you know, to read it now, and this is a book, you know, back from the Harlem Renaissance, but even going back to older titles, um, I mean, Jane Eyre is, you know, is something that I think most young women or a lot of young women, I shouldn't say most now because everyone's on TikTok. I don't know if they're reading Jane Eyre. <laughs> I honestly don't know. But um, I mean, that's a book, you know, I read female writers growing up because they're strong female characters and they're writing from, they're writing from an internal Point of view. They're writing from a place of inner self and emotion and finding their voice and having a strong voice. And for centuries, women had no voice. In, in, as we know, in certain countries and, and cultures today, women still have no voice or their, their voices are being threatened. And so it's, um, you, you can never forget. You can never, you know, you can never say, oh, it's not important to know what happened in the past. Because the past informs, you can't just say it never happened, and you learn from it, and you evolve from it, and the women writers in Bookish Broad, they all kind of stood on each other's shoulders, Um, and, you know, when George Eliot exposes herself as a female, after all the reviews have come out, and they're glowing reviews, and everyone thought she was a man, it gives Mm -hmm. other women the validation and the courage to then try their hand at it. That's such a compelling part of bookish broads too, that there is a web of connectivity between so many of these writers now that they're influenced by each other or that uh, those of one era reach backwards, not just forwards across time to influence another generation, but backwards across time to champion and resurrect and rediscover a few voices that came before them as well, that there is you know, not a clean line, but uh, circles and circles and circles that, that fold inward and outward onto each other in this work. And you've emphasized that in a couple sections of the book where you stray from the pattern of profiling individuals to, to put a group together because they have that level of connectivity to one another and those are particularly strong sections uh, as well. Uh, uh, and, and I want to talk about a couple of them, but before we do that, I want to share uh, just sort of a, a quick example from here in, in Beaufort that speaks to the very thing you're talking about, how easy it is for writers and female writers to boss to the passage of time uh, very quickly, too, because now when we hear the words Beaufort and writer, we immediately think of Conroy, but when Pat was a student at Buford High School, his very first creative writing teacher was the best-known writer in Buford at the time, a woman named Anne Head, 
who is best known, if she's known at all at this point, uh, as the author of a book called Mr. and Mrs. Bojo Jones, which was taught in high school classrooms for about 50 years as a cautionary but, but sensitive tale of teen pregnancy. And wow. it was made into a, a TV film, although not a very good one, uh, starring Desi Arnaz Jr. Hmm. And sometimes, to the, to the degree that anybody talks about that book, they will talk about it alongside The Outsiders. They were both published in 1967 and helped establish what we now think of as the young adult novel genre. Uh, but wow. The Outsiders has a, has a better origin story and a better movie. And S.E. Hinton is still around. Susan's still around doing events because she was, uh, what, 17 or 18 when that book came out. Yeah. So she's still very much, mm-hmm. yeah very much a part of the conversation about that book. Uh, whereas Anne Head died before her 60th birthday. I think she was 58 when she passed away. Mm-hmm. And no one did much work to preserve her literary legacy until her daughter, Nancy Thody, who's become a good friend of mine in the, in the past few years, has really gotten dedicated to resurrecting her mother's short stories, which were published in all the major women's magazines of the day. She was being published by Doubleday, the same publisher that will eventually publish Pat Conroy. And Nancy is really right now uh, doing the work of trying to gather those, those stories back together and write a short biography of her mother and publish that. Uh, but in, in that same spirit that bookish broads, as I mentioned, is sort of reaching backwards and forwards across time, Nancy is also interested in continuing her legacy by inspiring young writers right now in the same way that, that her mother inspired Pat Conroy. So she created a writing contest at Buford High, which was the, the school where her mother taught Pat and, and a half dozen other students. And uh, that award has been given twice. And Holland Perryman, my young protege, is the most recent winner of that award. So if, if, I am, if I am Pat's protege and Holland is mine, and Pat was Anne's, that's, you know, that's four in a row right there, uh, sort right. of building that line, uh, yeah. which is a wonderful story. But, but that doesn't happen for every writer. If, if no one steps up and, and makes sure that they continue to be read, continue to be studied, continue to be valued, it's very easy for them to slip through the cracks of time. And that, that needs to be especially true for female writers. So one more reason to uh, enjoy Treasure Bookish Broads, because you've done so much of that work of reintroducing writers who aren't necessarily part of, uh, of every single modern reader's bookshelf, but maybe should be. And I'm wondering about that specifically, about the way that Bookish Broads can be used to help us expand our catalogs. Uh, in our to-be-read piles, because you've included a very thoughtful bibliography alongside every profile. And I'm, I'm wondering about the decision process that went into that, into selecting not only the writers you wanted to recommend, but also the books by those writers you wanted to recommend. Right. I, well, I, you know, my, one of my goals was to, you know, it was to, well, it was obviously to honor these women and show what they had contributed to the culture through their work, but I also want to bring writers to their work. And there's, um, you know, some some of these books were so important to me, informing me. Um, Some of them I I read while I was doing research. And 
you know, some I had never heard of. And once I started to delve into it, I, you know, into some of their work, I, I was just blown away. I mean, one of the, um, I would say one of the most powerful was Octavia Butler. And, you know, I'm not a, mm. I'm not a science fiction reader, so it's not a genre that I, I know that much about. But when I started reading about Octavia, I could not, um, she just amazed me, no, because she was, she came from such a poor background and she also suffered through school with horrible dyslexia, but she really always wanted to write and she just came frequently taught herself how to do so. And she wrote Parable of the Sower, which is prophetic. I mean, there's no other way to say it. I mean, they say this about a lot of science fiction writers. She invents it. She created a world that when you go back and look at Parable of the Sower and what's happening in the world right now or over the past year, that is what's happening in the world right now. And she did it, you know, several decades before. She kind of predicted the future of, of the unrest um, and the climate change and uh, it, it, you kind of, it, it's sort of mind blowing. And in her lifetime, she did, she won awards and she was known, but she had never had a, a big bestseller. And interestingly enough, shortly after I got to Hachette, one of our sister companies, Grand Central Publishing, had the rights to Parable the Seller, and it had been on their backlist, and they repackaged it. And they put it out there, and it hit the New York Times bestseller list for the first time, 40 years after her death, because wow. what she writes about was exactly what was going on in 2020. And so it became very resonant during the pandemic and during all of the unrest and during the California fires that were happening. Um, you know, she, she finally found her a, a very large audience, but, you know, unfortunately it happened after her death. So sometimes it's, it's um, you know, the same things are sort of happening with Kate Chopin. It, you know, it ta- sometimes it takes an academic to specialize and bring that person to the forefront. Sometimes it's just world events where uh, a title from the past becomes, you know, finds new importance. You know, Silent Spring and Rachel Carson. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sure Rachel Carson is, is turning over in her grave right now. But, you know, the environmental, she was the first person to really understand what humans were doing to the environment and to begin to understand climate change and what the toxic chemicals that we were using, what they were, what they were doing in the world. And it was her testimony in front of Congress, really in the last year of her life, she was, she was suffering, you know, she died from breast cancer, but she went in front of Congress. And as a result of her testimony, the Environmental Protection Agency was founded. Um, but I don't know, you know, and, and I think environmentalists always knew about Rachel Carson and Silent Spring, but I don't know, you know, she was writing about this before Al Gore wrote, you know, made it his big thing. Um, so, you know, sometimes it just takes a while for the world to catch up with writers. 
Um, and I'm sure with, in the case of Anne, I mean, I don't know for sure. I don't, I, and I'm, I'm, I want to read some of her work and learn more about her, but um, I'm sure writing about teenage pregnancy in the sixties didn't win her a ton of fans. I'm sure there was some backlash to that. You know, I'm sure in, in, in the same way that Judy Bloom is one of the most censored writers because she wrote about honest things that people go through during adolescence, but nobody, you know, I know as a, as an adolescent that her books helped me tremendously <laughs> and millions and millions of people um, as they were going through that confusing time, but she's one of the most censored and banned writers in history. Um, do you happen to know if Anne had backlash for writing about teenage pregnancy? Yes, uh, she did, uh, and not just by virtue of the book, but uh, also by virtue of an unplanned pregnancy in her own life, not as a teenager, but, but later in life, which is a, a fascinating story on its own, one, one that she could never uh, actually write about. But the, the work that her daughter is doing to really show uh, that her mother was, was so far ahead of her time in so many things she was willing to write about, uh, the one thing she never wrote about was her small town. It was about Beaufort because she came from a Beaufort family and didn't feel that she could do that. Right. But the advice that she gave Pat Conroy as a military brat was he can write about anything he wanted because he, he was untethered in that way. And that really right. opened the door for Pat's imagination in, in interesting ways. I, I want to uh, pick up on a couple things that you said you've, you've, uh, you've given us so much to talk about, and we're not going to have time to get to all of it, but a couple of points you made, I think, are really uh, well worth stressing. We had a program on Silent Spring at our, as part of our Conroy Festival a couple of years ago with a historical reenactor doing a sort of Chautauqua-style performance, uh, and it was fascinating how many members in our audience weren't familiar with that with Rachel Carson or with, with the book either, uh, but they were very familiar with what she was writing about, right? The concepts all seemed familiar because yeah. the concepts are all incredibly relevant, but they right. had no idea it began with her. But we had uh, very intentionally as part of the festival that year, Janice Ray, who is so often identified as the, as the Rachel Carson of the South and is very much influenced by that tradition you know, and, and that was an interesting moment to be able to talk about wrote both writers simultaneously and to actually hear from Janice uh, in, in that festival about how much Silent Spring had influenced her and why, and sort of who knew about that book and when and who cared about it and when and right. what it took for, for everyone to realize that that book was going to be important. That book was incredibly relevant. And what you've said about sometimes it takes an academic, sometimes it, it, it takes that to add credibility and to reinsert a book into classrooms where, where they take on a life of their own uh, mm -hmm. is very, is very uh, an important statement as well, too. There was a wonderful scholar of Fitzgerald's and, uh, and Hemingway and Thomas Wolfe named uh, Matt Bruckley, who taught at USC and Columbia University of South Carolina for years. And that was that was his central argument, that it took academics to add credibility to writers. And the reason anybody reads Great Gatsby is because it's taught. Uh, no one would necessarily find that book on its own if that hadn't happened, if it hadn't entered the classroom at the point that it did and, and continues to be in the classroom to this day. So, you know, to think that Octavia Butler uh, and the Earthseed series, you know, has a second life because 
she was such a fantastic speculative writer, and she did that thing that speculative writers do so well. She effectively predicted a moment that, that happened, tried to warn us about it, uh, didn't succeed in that, did it nonetheless. And, and now we have reason, cause to revisit that book and that voice. That's very right. powerful when, when that happens. Yes. Um, I, mean, I, I always think of, you know, writers, I think of writers and imagination and creativity really as a spiritual act. You know, it's a spiritual mm. and it's an intuitive thing. I just think writers have a sensitivity and an awareness of what's going on. And in their imagination, they can, they can almost see things in some cases, like we just, they see things that other people don't see. And to be able to express that on the page in a beautiful way that makes people want to hear it it's just aston- it's an astonishing gift. It is exactly that, though. It's a gift. It's becoming attuned to the moment in which you live and the stories that uh, preceded you and, and may follow you and engaging with that as a dialogue, as a conversation with the universe, uh, which, right. which is something that artists can do very well. I mentioned earlier that there are sections of the book which speak to groups of women, and I want to circle back to one of those because it will also give us a, a chance to talk a little more about your own writing life. There's a section in Bookish Broads called A Room of Their Own, um, and I think that was – correct me if I'm wrong, please, but I think that mm-hmm. was excerpt in where? In uh, literary. literary Hub? Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then that seemed to circulate really well because that spoke to the experiences of so many writers and so many female writers in particular of needing that space where you can leave what is otherwise your day-to-day life and have a creative, have a creative space of your own that is, that is just that, that is there for that purpose and available to you for that purpose. Uh, for you, from what I understand, the low country has, has kind of become that place. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your relationship with our low country, where you are tonight, in fact. Sure. So I, I'm in Hilton Head, and I have been coming down here since I was 10 years old. And um, my family spends a lot of time here. And it's, I mean, I, I, I really, I grew up here. I spent my summers here. And during the during both of my maternity leaves, I was down here. During the pandemic, I was down here for several months. But when I was writing Bookish Broads, uh, the, the house here became the room of my own. Now, I had my two children with me. <laughs> I, told them, I, I would make a bunch of food in the morning, and then I would go sit on the front porch and say, you have to spend for yourself today. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, and I, you know, writing, when, when you really immerse yourself, like for me, uh, you know, it's 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, and for me to sit on the front porch with the fan whirling, with the birds chirping, with the peace and the quiet, I can just, I, there's something in the air here that just gets my imagination going that makes me calm and present in a way that I, I'm not in 
you know, in my regular day-to-day life, because in my day-to-day life, I'm doing, I'm raising my kids and I'm working and I'm running errands and I'm doing laundry and I'm grocery shopping. So it's just, I still have to do those things here, but there's, there's something about, there's something in the air here that is so rich. And I've written many books here. I've ghost written books here. I wrote all three of my books here. Um, I've written, you know, I, I know that if I ever, if I need inspiration to come here and just spend some time to decompress that the creative part of my brain turns on and I can't explain mm-hmm. it. It's a magical place for me and very dear to my heart. It, it is that for so many of us. And what you describe is, has been described and shared with me many times by many writers and, and artists of other genres as well, visual artists, dancers, singers, musicians. We have you know, so many creative folks who come to the country and have that same experience. And that was certainly true of Pat Conroy as well. And he would describe it as becoming attuned to the tide, to the rhythm of nature being in this place where the world is created and recreated reliably every single day by virtue of the salt marshes and and the tides and the rhythm of that natural world. And if you allow yourself to be open to it, it is indeed a magical connection uh, that one can make to that that rhythm. Pat, uh, when he was in Buford and writing, he always had his desk up against a window looking out at the marsh uh, so he could actually watch the movie, as he called it, could see that happen and unfold over yeah. the course of his writing day, too, and right. really get in sync with it, uh, which is yeah. a wonderful experience to have. And um, we've just got, we're going to run just a few minutes over our uh, our time tonight, but we've got studio time to do that. Uh, so I want to uh, say a couple things, well, one thing about the idea of a room of her own. And then I have one final question I'd like to ask you in closing as well. Um, That was a gift that Pat gave his wife and fellow Southern writer Cassandra King when she came to the Low Country and joined Pat uh, in their home, which at that point was on Fripp Island. That was the promise that he made her, that she would have the thing she never had before, a room of her own, a writing room of her own. And that's how they lived their lives. They would go to their respective writing rooms and they would spend their days writing and they would get back together after that. And Cassandra, even though she had other books published by the, by that point in her life had never had that room. She'd never had that creative space entirely of her own. And Pat knew immediately that that was going to be vital to her. That that was something he could do for her to respect her and honor her as a fellow writer and fellow storyteller. And I love that about that, about that relationship, that that, that's what made it work for them, that they always lived in such a way that they each had their own writing room. Fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's, Yes. I mean, it, that's, it's so hard to find that because it's not, it, it's the physical room, right? but it's also the, the room in your head to find that yeah. head, to get into the mm-hmm. right mindset where the ideas and the thoughts are flowing and, um, you know, and then to be able to go for, to go for a walk at sunset and to watch the egrets and the flying fish or to go for a long walk on the beach and watch the tide. It just, you know, things come together. It's like magic happens. 
and um, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to find that. It's hard to find that. So. It is. It's magical when it happens, as you say. Yes. It's, not only is it hard to find it, it, it's really hard to explain it to someone who's never experienced the low country as well. Yes. But once yes. people are here, if they allow themselves to be open to this space uh, and this place and what it offers, I think a lot of people have that experience, too. And even people who never thought they had any kind of creative ambitions whatsoever uh, we'll discover that they do. That's certainly been our experience at the Conroy Center of people who've come to writing very late in life, having having lived and worked and raised families and never once had a thought about putting a word or a story or a novel or play or a poem on the page. And now that's the very thing they want to do because of, of the energy of this place. And I, I, I think that's also true of the of the just voracious readers that people become in the low country too. They want not only to create, but to experience the creations of others as well. And that's why we have so many book clubs here in the low country and ultimately what led to our, our book club convention, which you're participating in this week. So in the spirit of that, as our, as our closing question here, uh, I want to mention and then ask you about the, the reading guide that you recently put together for bookish broads and uh, how people can access that, first of all, but also what's in it and sort of how you recommend that book clubs, that communities of readers engage with bookish broads and, and lead discussions about it as well. Right. Well, you know, because I recommend reading in the, you know, in the book for each of the, you know, sort of starting points for each of the mm-hmm. writers, I just, I thought, um, a reading guide would be useful to help just to start conversation to really look at where these women came from and for diff, you know for people in book clubs who are such voracious readers obviously love books to to really find their favorites to talk about some of the favorites that they knew about that they read when they were younger or that they've read recently but to also by reading the stories behind the storytellers, by, by reading about these women feeling compelled to go read some of their own work. Um, so it's sort of like a, a, it's a reading group guy that's kind of a double whammy of talking mm-hmm. about what's happening in Bookish Broad, but also opening up the door for further conversations in reading groups about the works of the women that I write about. And I just created it. I'm uh, I am going to put it up on my website, which is laurenmarinobooks.com. On laurenmarinobooks.com, there's a, a, a way to contact me, and if you send me an email, I am ha- more than happy to send it to anyone who wants to take a look at it. It has some fun ideas for the book club and some questions. And it also includes my interview with Holland, who I cannot wait to meet in live in person. She sounds just such an incredible uh, young woman to, um, you know, to provide context. And uh, so it's laurenmarinobooks.com. I'm also going to be in Charleston uh, or outside of Charleston tomorrow night at Main Street Reads doing a, uh, I'm going to do a short uh, reading and book signing, and then I'm going to meet with the Pulpwood Queens Book Club of Charleston, and it's open to the public. 
and I believe that starts around 6 o'clock tomorrow night. I think you're right. That uh, That is the independent bookstore that's in Somerville, uh, just outside of Charleston. And that is our friend Sherry Stouch, who owns that, who's been to see us any number of times here in Beaufort. And the Pulpwood Queens of Charleston are a fantastic group. I know you're going to have a great time with them. And then you will also get to meet the Pulpwood Queens chapter of Beaufort when you're with us on Saturday. Janet McCauley and that whole crew are very excited to meet you, and certainly as Holland is as well. And several other of the young writers I work with who will, who will be with us on Saturday uh, also are all very excited that you were able to yes. join us then. Yes. To, just, you know, to sit around with other people who love books as much as I do. I mean, like we could be on this, we could be talking for hours, Jonathan and <laughs> uh, you know, it's my selfish indulgence. I, you know, I'm, I love to talk to other people about books because it, it, it's a, you know, it's not a conversation that happens enough, I think, and in today's culture. So I'm, I'm the book geek. I'm always I have a lot to talk about and a lot to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you've got so many opportunities to do that, uh, not only on this trip, but in general, too, uh, because the the responses you gave to Holland in the interview for Southern Review of Books were just phenomenal. And I'm so glad to see that included in in the reading guide, because there's so much insight into everything you have to say about the genesis of this book and why it matters. Uh, and who's in it and who's not in it and how you made those decisions. And, you know, I'm very excited to see book clubs actually discuss this uh, on Saturday when our Pulpwood Queens book club gets to do that. But I'm also excited to see what questions Holland and our other young writers have for you because they come from a, a different perspective um, sure. than, than perhaps yeah. others do as well. And yeah. they're very excited to hear what kind of advice you have uh, for young writers as well. So that event is an in-person event at the Low Country Book, uh, excuse me, the Low Country Technical College of the Low Country. There we go. Uh, Buford Campus, but we'll also be recording it and making it available on our YouTube channel and our Facebook page afterwards. So people will be able to see it regardless of whether or not they can be in Buford, South Carolina this Saturday. But I'm glad you can be with us, Lauren, and I really appreciate your time on the podcast here tonight. So in closing, I want to say thank you for that, uh, not only for our conversation tonight, but for, uh, for joining us on Saturday as part of the convention as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your support and enthusiasm, and I'm excited to meet everyone and to talk more about Bookish Broad and publishing and writing and and whatever else anyone wants to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) We will find out what's on everyone's minds on Saturday um, at the Technical College of the Low Country. Lauren will be with us at 2 o'clock, and again, Video content from that session will be available on the Pat Conroy Literary Center Facebook page and YouTube afterwards. Thank you, everybody out there in podcast land. I will be back here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network next month as well, and I hope you all tune in then also. Good night, everybody.